when conflict occurs, when people are assessed for suitability for critical care and its therapies, and the decision is made that these therapies are not in their best interests, are perhaps futile. But despite those, if a family and a parent speciality have agreed that, for example, the phrase is often used, they would want everything, or for full escalation, and the difficulty is that critical care feel that these therapies are inappropriate and therefore they are not obliged to provide them, how do you try and resolve a conflict like that? I think it's recognition that there is intrinsic conflict and there is going to be a problem. And I think in that scenario, You've got to anticipate that there will be conflict and you've got to do everything you can to avoid conflict. You know, the other recurring theme is, as we've already alluded to, you have had families bringing up an individual with, you know, phenomenal health impairment right from birth. And they have invested phenomenal physical and emotional effort in optimising both the health and well-being and fulfilment of that individual. And they've also probably faced a lifetime of people being discriminatory Mm. with regards to that level of disability. And so they are braced for someone implying either directly or, or indirectly that they don't believe there is a favourable outcome possible from that. And they, the families, will interpret that as, oh, that's another doctor stating that my daughter's life is not worth living. And immediately, the antibodies, well, it's, they're, they're sort of preconditioned, aren't they? Mm. It's, um, and so the barriers will be up. And in those circumstances, you quickly get into a point where positions become more polarised, more entrenched, and before you know it, there is no reasonable dialogue because any inquiry as to background quality of life is automatically interpreted as he's already saying that my daughter doesn't have a quality of life that is worth saving. And incredibly challenging that for intensive care, and there are There are no lessons from time other than don't go to war with a family. It escalates, it entrenches, it polarises. What needs to be accommodated, first and foremost, is an understanding that these individuals have sacrificed their life. Their life has put on hold, their family may have been broken up as a consequence of this. But their whole existence is focused on the support of this particular individual. Spoken about personal cost Mm. and with reference to the person undergoing our intensive care treatments, which, as we've recognised, are not benign and often very unpleasant. In terms of the cost across the organisation or care provider, the cost to other patients and other people seeking our services, which are not unlimited, Does the capacity and busyness, if you like, of a service influence these decisions? And is that right if it does? My primary view is that it should not influence that in any way. The decision-making for the individual patient should be based on that assessment. The inevitability of your bed availability will influence how you approach that patient. But it should be directed at what can be achieved at ward level. 
do we need to put them in an alternative area pending critical care admission? Can we move someone out earlier than ideally we so would like? So you increase your, not risk-taking behaviour, but the risks you would have taken earlier, expedited discharges and so forth. That, I think, has got to be understood because I think all of us will have had to make a decision about expediting a discharge or a step down for logistical reasons. And what do we say to that individual and their family? You could justify that on the basis that for you to have accessed this unit as a patient Someone before you has had to be discharged early or transferred, and therefore you are not being discriminated against. You are part of a process of care that impacts on more than one patient because of the resource issues that we have available. So I think we just have to live with that dynamic, and we have got to be honest. And when you have that clash, is a legal solution often at the last resort, but the only way forward? The, it, it, I view the involvement of the courts as the last resort. But should you or should you not embark on that last resort? It's incredibly destructive for the unit, for the individuals involved, because if you go the distance and actually you get the authority of the court to withdraw life-sustaining medical treatment, you think, well, fine, we've won that particular argument. The courts have accepted the position that we've set out. But what do you actually do with that information? You know, you've got a family that are still polarised and entrenched. Do you just come straight back from court and whip the tube out? There are implications if you've got a family with a grievance. What do you do? When do you do it? Who does it? And how is the aftermath going to be managed? You know, if you think about what constitutes a good death for the patient in whom there is acceptance by all concerned of whatever argument for futility we're taking out of those three, a good death means an understanding the futility by the family and the family have moved on to say it's no longer dignified, it's no longer humane, and we want things to be drawn to a close in as compassionate a way as possible. And you, as a clinician, the nursing team, liaise about how that will be done. It's not choreographing a death. It's accommodating what the family would have wanted and what they consider constitutes good death. So for some, that is removing all tubes and lines. For others, it's just gradually reducing certain aspects of therapy. So that ultimately is what we strive for. We strive for a good death if we cannot achieve the goal of a return to a meaningful quality of life. How do you do that if you've got a family that have listened, have been told the decision of the courts, but don't accept it and are not willing to embrace it? Well, I'll ask you the question, how do you do that? How can you have that, how can you have that discussion? And I would say, you can't have that discussion. It's... In a way, you need third-party involvement if that is possible. But if that's not achievable and you predict it's not going to be achievable, you put a position forward to the courts that, given the conclusion of the courts with regards to the appropriateness of continuing or discontinuing life-sustaining medical treatment, 
and there being no effective communication between family and healthcare teams, um, it is proposed that the patient will be extubated at 12 midday on day X. And we sincerely hope in the meantime that the family accept that position and make all efforts to ensure that that can be conducted in as humane a way as possible. That is the only way to take it forward, to have the court's endorsement that the proposal that you put forward is in the patient's best interest. That is such a rare thing. You know, I am aware of having had to go down that route, not from myself as a clinical point of view, but in terms of some of the cases that I've been involved in in the court of protection. And have any of them involved decisions about patients with a request to admission to critical care, or these always patients who have already been established on critical care and critical care therapies? Is there a distinction between those two populations? Um, No. So those that are already on an intensive care unit, you know, the recurring population is patients who have sustained hypoxic ischemic brain injury after out of hospital cardiac arrest. They've been stabilised out. They've been weaned off ventilatory support. Mm. They have been stepped down to ward level. Right. And the, the family are not accepting a non-resuscitation, non-escalation, non-readmission. So it is that that is being taken to the courts. There is always a number of arguments put forward by the next of kin in those circumstances. The primary argument that will predictably be put forward would be, we totally disagree with the clinical team with regards to the degree of brain dysfunction. We think we are getting consistent and meaningful responses to our communication with them. The second argument put through will be because of the particular religious beliefs of this individual, the patient would wish to be kept alive rather than have treatment withdrawn. That is a strong spiritual belief. Because the legal precedents are that sanctity of life as a religious construct is not applicable in a secular society, which we are. So a a religious argument that someone should be kept alive or should access life-sustaining medical treatment um, on religious grounds is not something that is considered a robust argument in this country. Just going back to your second point, you said that for those where there's concern from the family members that the medical consensus opinion that they feel readmission to critical care is providing treatments that are inappropriate, which contrast with the family's view of what is a good outcome for that patient, as you mentioned, is very difficult to resolve. Is there an argument at that point for a mediator or a second opinion from outside of the organisation? And is that something that you think will become more common and more prolific as we move forward? There are individuals who have set themselves up as mediators. When I was first involved in this, and this goes back to the best part of 20 years, it was clear that if you are going to reach a best interest decision, if you're going to advise the courts in terms of the application of the Mental Capacity Act, 
providing a best interest evaluation advice to the courts, then that has got to be based on an interview with the next of kin with regards to values and beliefs. So you can't avoid that interface because best interest, if it's looking at benefits and burdens, you have to at the very least consider what what was this individual's level of primary function? What did we know about his interests and his functionality? What did we know about his values and beliefs? And do we think those are realistically achievable? So in those circumstances, you actually are getting a lot of information from that family. And you're also getting from them an understanding of how the polarization of views, the entrenchment of positions arose, what their niggles are with regards to service delivery, what were the triggers for these polarized positions. And inevitably, in those circumstances, you could negotiate a middle ground and advise the courts as to what you believe to be in the patient's best interests. And if you could get concessions from the treating team, you could predictably get concessions from the family. So the role that I was primarily given by the Court of Protection and the official solicitor would be to derive an applicable best interest decision. And that inevitably involves some degree of compromise from all sides. Because ultimately, you want to resolve that conflict that has become so entrenched and has thought that the only possible solution can be the involvement of the courts. But as we said already, what do the courts tell you? The courts will come up with a very simple conclusion. It is or it isn't in their best interest to continue or to provide or to withdraw life-sustaining medical treatment. It's not providing micromanagement of the process of care. It's a broad brush. It's not going to get you to closure for this particular case in a practical sense. So it became clear that there was a need for having constructive dialogue and getting both sides to compromise in an attempt to come together and actually achieve the best result for that patient. So you were asking though about resources, and this for me is one of the areas where I do believe the court has a legitimate role, because if your position is so entrenched, you have got the patient we've described making no recovery. But it is clear they are occupying a critical care bed and that is impacting on provision of critical care for not only the patients that are requiring critical care, but also has got broader implications. You know, if you're cancelling the cancer case on the max fax list, you've got wasted whole theatre schedule, which then puts everything back. And I think if you have got a scenario that is having an impact on care delivery to other patients and there is no chance of resolving this because you've had your second opinion, you've had as much objective evidence as can realistically be provided, you've got the clinical picture, you've got the MRI, you've got the EEG, and you've got those at intervals, nothing is changing. And theoretically, you've got a patient 
compromising, then yes, it's not good for morale. As clinicians, as medics, we only see that patient and that family at intervals. Our nursing colleagues are there by the bed, committed to a whole series of interventions, which they're quite capable of expressing a view on as to whether it's appropriate over the longer term or not. And that is destructive. If you sit on a futile scenario in any of those categories, you will be coming under scrutiny as a clinician by your colleagues who expect a show of leadership in such circumstances. So I do think the resource issue is something that it is appropriate to go the distance on. And the courts do understand that. But I think what you have to underpin that application with is clarity with regards to your opinion that a meaningful quality of life cannot be restored. And that, I think, is the bottom line. Because if you had to summarise the goal of intensive care, it would be to restore the patient to what they consider is a meaningful quality of life. Thank you.